0: From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio. Exploring the latest developments in health and
1: medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheid. And I'm Tracy McCrae. It's back to school time when kids across the country say goodbye to summer jobs, summer friends, and summer routines and return to the classroom.
2: In this special back to school edition of Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll cover a number of important health topics to help you get your child ready for school.
1: Among them, how much sleep does your child
3: need to be a fully engaged student? The children are getting at the most about six and a half or seven hours of sleep at night. But how much sleep do they really need for optimum alertness? About nine to 9.5 hours.
2: Also, are your child's vaccinations up to date? Is there a right sport for your child? And how to recognize depression in your preteen or adolescence.
1: All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Schein. And I'm Tracy McRae. This is our back-to-school program. Probably no health problem affects more kids than lack of adequate sleep. As school gets underway, one of the hardest things for many youngsters to do is to get up and get going in the morning. You remember those days, don't you?
2: I'm living through them right now in a second <laughs> Still, way, Tom. Yeah. Yes, indeed, many children, especially teenagers, <clears throat> simply don't get enough sleep during the school year, and that can lead to sleep deprivation, which has serious consequences.
1: Here to talk about how much sleep children, teens and preteens, should have is Dr. Surish Kotagal. Dr. Kotagal is a pediatric neurologist and sleep disorder specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kodogal. Thank you very much. Now, we know it seems like a lot of teenagers dance to the beat of a different drummer. Is their sleep cycle, is their clock different than the rest of us?
3: Uh, Yes. Uh, You you know, when you have an 8-year-old and you tell them to go to sleep at 8 o'clock or 8.30, they can do that, no problem. But what happens when they become teenagers, they are simply unable to go to sleep because of changes in their brain physiology till about 10:30 or 11 so melatonin the hormone which signals that they are ready for sleep that starts kicking in only around 10:30 or 11 so they just don't get sleepy before that time so unfortunately, what happens is their sleep is sandwiched between a late uh, sleep onset time, and then they have to get up early. Uh, so well, it isn't fair.
1: Yes. <laughs> it is not their fault.
3: Uh, that's for sure. And uh, part of the problem is that school, high school starts relatively early, 7.25, 7.30. So uh, the children are getting at the most about six and a half or seven hours of sleep at night. But how much, do they, how much sleep do they really need for optimum alertness? About 9 to 9.5 hours.
2: But if the answer is, what they're biologically what they should be doing is sleeping later in the morning, that's not possible. Is it Correct. possible for them to go to bed at 9.30 at night?
3: It simply uh, doesn't work for their body physiology. The, the earliest they can fall asleep is about 10 or 10.30.
1: So we got to start school later. This is the obvious answer? There's been talk about this, hasn't there? Uh,
3: you, you're absolutely right, and it's been talked about now for several years uh, here in Minnesota. Uh, studies go back to the late 1990s. Uh, Kayla Warmstrom at uh, University of Minnesota looked at it, and she found that when school started about a, even it was about a half hour late, children were happier uh, at home. Parents saw that for the first time their children were having breakfast at home and were more pleasantly disposed. And the teachers also said, yeah, their pupils are happier. And, they, you know, believe it or not, their grades actually improved. You said nine hours is what yeah. a teenager should be getting. Yeah.
2: Let's go back the other way. What about um, elementary school kids? How much sleep should they be getting?
3: I would say about the same okay, for the most part. Yeah,
1: They're getting six or six and a half. They need nine or nine yeah. and a half. So yes. in a week, they're 15 hours short.
3: Absolutely. There's some studies uh, which show that this is from the National Sleep Foundation, or between 50 to 60 percent of our teens are chronically sleep deprived and what happens when children are sleep deprived? Well uh, they are more prone to get into accidents, they are more prone to get depression so it is sleepiness in teenagers is a major uh, public health uh, problem equally uh, of equal magnitude to obesity in teenagers yet uh, it is somehow not getting enough traction
2: I think everybody just says, ah, oh, teenagers are lazy. That's the yep. deal. And do they, they just write it off. Okay. Yes. I'm in a school district though that starts early. Um, what can I do to help my teenager go to bed earlier rather than later?
3: Okay. So I think before I answer that, let me say, so things that keep a teenager up till about 1130 or 12, first is, uh, after school work. Teenagers will very often want to work at a local restaurant or do some part-time job. And that takes about three or four hours of time from the evening or at night, the time that they should really be devoting to homework or academics. So then they come home at 8.39. And uh, so I think cutting down on uh, after-school work, uh, especially when school is in session, that is one issue. Secondly, if they have to work out or exercise, uh, remember exercise within two hours of bedtime is going to actually postpone sleep because it raises body temperature and one doesn't become sleepy anymore. So if the child has to uh, run on the treadmill or lift weights, well, that should happen earlier in the evening. And third thing, of course, would be avoiding uh, caffeinated beverages, if possible, uh, uh, certainly nothing after the afternoon. And then uh, cutting down on screen time. I mean, I, I think that, I mean, there was a study at the University of Pennsylvania showed that the number of devices in a in the bedroom of a teenager could be as much as four. <laughs> and uh, so I, I, I think we need to cut down the screen time because not only is the content of the electronic devices uh, activating for them, it's also the light that is emitted from these sources, which is a problem. What about uh,
2: medications? Sleep medications for kids? Should they be doing taking that to try to go to sleep
3: earlier? I would hate to have a teenager start taking medication to facilitate sleep. They've got their whole life ahead of them. I'd rather they learn the skill or the ability to fall asleep on their own. Can you catch up? I mean,
1: is it okay if you're 15 hours short to? to sleep for 15 hours on the extra,
3: on the on the weekend? Can you truly catch up for lost sleep? The good thing is, I don't think, if we, if we have a deficit of 15 hours, we don't quite really need 15 hours of sleep to make up. I think the sleep that uh, the body seems to miss the most is a uh, we call deep sleep or slow-wave sleep, so the, the sleep that we normally get in the first three or four hours. So if, if we are able to catch up with the three or four hours of good uninterrupted sleep, that should be okay. You mentioned tr- that,
1: uh, that the, uh, the body's natural mechanism for putting us to sleep is melatonin. Correct. You can buy melatonin uh, yes. at the nutrition store. Is, is that a reasonable uh,
3: option for sleep for teenagers? In some ch- uh, teenagers, it would help, certainly. But I think that uh, before even going to that, uh, once again, we are taking a substance. I would rather that the child learn the skills just like they learn so many other social skills when they're teenagers they should learn to be able to fall asleep on their
2: own and can we do that before school starts we've got just a couple of days left here before school starts is that possible yeah, well, like you're getting ready for jet lag travel yeah,
3: you're right no it's it's uh thanks razi that's a tough question but yes i think certainly they can start cutting down on uh, their uh, the time they are spending doing uh part-time work and uh uh, I think a number of studies show you really should not be working more than 8, 15 to 20 hours a week. So you start cutting that down and have some more time, quiet time at home. Uh, make sure that you're not exercising within two or three hours of bedtime. Uh, and same thing with the electronic devices. I think it's possible.
1: Dr. Suresh Kodigal is a sleep disorder specialist and pediatric neurologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks for all the great information, oh, teenagers okay. and sleep. Thank you. My pleasure.
2: We're going to take a short break. When we come back, whether your child is heading off to kindergarten or high school, will he or she be protected against communicable diseases, including measles, that are making a comeback? We'll talk with an immunization expert when we return.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Schein. And I'm Tracy McRae. The measles vaccine, you know, it's been around since 1963 and it has been really effective in stopping the spread of measles, not just here, but around the world. And that despite a few recent outbreaks in this country, usually in people who didn't get their vaccination. Here to talk about the measles
2: vaccine and other vaccinations you should get before going back to school is Mayo Clinic pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist, Dr. Robert Jacobson. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Jacobson.
4: It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So the measles vaccine pretty much has wiped out this uh, disease, but not completely.
4: Right. We were close to eliminating it uh, in the United States. And we did eliminate endemic disease in the sense that all the cases that we've been suffering, including nearly 200 this year in 2015, originated from people who traveled, primarily U.S. citizens, who traveled abroad and brought the disease back and then exposed others who were not vaccinated, who unfortunately could not get the vaccine or had refused to get the vaccine. And then a smaller number of people had got the vaccine but did not respond to the vaccine.
2: When that incident happened uh, at Disneyland, it was during spring break. How many people ultimately got the measles uh, from that?
4: The, the majority of the 180 cases that we've had so far this year were actually a result of that uh, case. I, I believe it was in January was the oh, exposure. Was it? mm-hmm. And it's a place where many people congregate, uh, uh, move uh, from one uh, resort to another and one entertainment spot from another. And really brought together thousands and thousands of people, including those who had refused to get the vaccine, acquired the infection, and then spread it to others. I believe over 100 uh, Mm. were infected from uh, the result of that exposure in Disneyland.
2: During the Disneyland uh, exposure, I heard a phrase that I'd never heard before, and that was herd immunity. And uh, explain what herd immunity is. Herd
4: immunity is a feature uh, where we protect those who can't respond to the vaccine or are too young to get the vaccine by getting the vaccine ourselves so we don't bring the infection in their midst turns out herd immunity works better for some diseases and some vaccines than it does for others. For example, vaccinating school children against the flu does a wonderful job with herd immunity in protecting our elderly. Some studies have shown that actually we get far more mileage, if you will, in vaccinating school children against the flu uh, in terms of reducing illness and death among those 65 years and older than if we had vaccinated those 65 years and older. But it's more of a problem with me Vaccine, We actually have to vaccinate 95% of us. 95% of us need to be immune to protect the other 5% of people who are too young to get the vaccine, didn't respond to the vaccine uh, or refuse to get it. Now, it turns out people who refuse a vaccine tend to uh, cluster or flock together, if you will. And that makes for a problem. We can talk about achieving rates of 80, 90%, but in some counties in California, the vaccine refusal rate for measles was 20, 30%. Those people cluster, go to uh, school together, go to um, a neighborhood and community gatherings together, and when one's exposed, they bring it into that group of people and it spreads wildly.
1: This isn't such a bad disease, though, is it? I mean, the, the vaccine wasn't available when I was a kid, so we all had the measles.
4: Actually, for those who survive it, it's a great disease. <laughs> because it leaves you with right lifelong immunity. For those who didn't survive it or suffered the complication, um, it's a horrible disease. In fact, it was described fairly early on, I believe in the ninth century, as a more terrible form of disease than smallpox. <laughs> Across the world, um, for people who are battling issues with nutrition, it's a real killer. Still 180,000 people die of this disease every year, mainly children five years and younger. Um, and it is a, a cause of pneumonia and hospitalization. And up to uh, 25% of uh, uh, people who uh, get the pneumonia really suffer terribly with it. It's also a cause of ear infection, about percent of measles victims get ear infections now about one out of a thousand get a brain inflammation uh, that's horrific and can leave the, leave them, uh, blind and, uh, deaf and with mental incapacities for the rest of their life. Two out of a thousand tend to die of the disease. And, uh, depending on when it hits you and your age, it can, it can actually, uh, be much higher rates of that in the U.S., uh, and in developing countries, as I mentioned, uh, if you're undernourished, uh, much higher rates. Uh, so it can be devastating. More than that, while you may get the measles and, uh, after, a week uh, survive of it, it's an incredibly contagious virus. Actually, the most contagious virus we know, Uh, it remains in a room an hour after you left it, and you're contagious up to three days before you know you have the illness, and you can spread it to babies who have no immunity, people who are on immunosuppressive drugs, and it can lead to the death.
1: Knowing all that, Why are there people who refuse to get vaccinated or don't get vaccinated?
4: Uh, They don't know, one, the disease, and they don't know its complications. It's been a long time since we've seen outbreaks in most communities of measles. In fact, unfortunately, most physicians and nurses haven't seen a case of measles. The last case of measles I saw was uh, in 1987. Um, That makes for uh, a lot of people who don't think about measles and don't think about the harm it can do and think of it as something that once was a tolerable childhood illness. On top of that, an ex-physician, uh, he had his license taken away, invented a claim that measles caused autism, uh, and he managed to convince 17 of his colleagues to publish a paper in Lancet. The journal has now since retracted it, claiming there was an association of the vaccine with autism. Uh, that fueled uh, the fears of a lot of parents. Uh, of course, we all fear autism, I never want to do anything that put my patients uh, in harm's way uh, uh, and result in them getting autism. Sure. But you can imagine for many people who didn't understand uh, that the claim was fake and not based on any evidence, chose not to vaccinate. It actually led to epidemics all over the world. And to this date, we still have uh, European countries that struggle with measles in a way that our country hasn't for decades. Now, we have over two dozen studies now done all over the world by all sorts of variety of groups, very large populations of patients, showing absolutely no association of that vaccine with autism. We need to be looking elsewhere for the cause of autism, and we need to use this vaccine. It's a safe, effective vaccine that can dramatically reduce the harm of measles.
2: Kids are getting ready to go back to school, and whether they are going to kindergarten or starting their first year of college, getting immunizations should be part of getting ready to go back to school. What immunizations should children get?
4: Well, you know, I think it's important for all of us to make sure that we're up to date on vaccines. So parents right now should be contacting their offices, their children's uh, medical offices, as well as their own, and asking um, uh, for the clinician to review the immunization record and make sure it's up to date. It sure has grown more complex than the days when we were just giving uh, diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, polio vaccine, and an MMR. Uh, Now uh, we've actually vaccinated against 20 different diseases by the time a child's five years of age with multiple doses that need to be carefully spaced apart. Now, the average school-age child should have had five diphtheria tetanus acellular pertussis vaccines and four polio vaccines, two MMRs, two chickenpox doses, uh, four pneumococcal conjugate vaccine doses, three hepatitis B doses, two hepatitis A doses, and of course, every year, the annual flu vaccine. Now, as one gets older, Older, not only do you have your annual flu vaccine after you've made it into kindergarten, uh, but at age 9, Mayo Clinic recommends children start the three-dose series against the human papilloma virus vaccine. It's recommended for 11- to 12-year-olds with permission to start at 9. We've learned here at Mayo Clinic starting at 9 means all the difference in terms of completing it on time mm-hmm. in a timely way. And so we routinely started at 9 years of age. At 11, we give a tetanus diphtheria cellular pertussis dose that is designed for adolescents and adults, uh, and that gives protection for 10 years against tetanus and diphtheria as well as uh, boosting that pertussis protection, and we also recommend the beginning dose of a two-dose series against meningococcal disease at age 11 with a repeat dose at 16.
1: So you seem to know this stuff pretty well. It sounds like a lot of shots to me, doesn't it, to you? But you
2: don't get them all at once. That's the key thing to remember.
1: Thanks very much for the update on the measles vaccine and immunizations. Is Dr. Robert Jacobson.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: Dr. Jacobson is a pediatrician and adolescent medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic.
2: Still to come on our back-to-school edition of Mayo Clinic Radio, getting ready for a school sport. Choosing a sport that's a good fit takes
1: planning. And anxiety and depression are no strangers to preteens and adolescents. We'll talk with an expert on diagnosing and treating depression in youngsters.
2: Have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu.
1: Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
0: Battling the high cost of cancer drugs, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. A group of the nation's leading cancer experts has a prescription on how to reduce the high cost of cancer drugs because it affects patient care.
1: The most important thing is awareness. The most important thing is to let the patients know that they're not forgotten, that they're not alone in their frustration and their pain and the direct harm of not getting the drugs.
0: The price of drugs could wipe out half of some people's incomes. In other news, the FDA approves a new injectable drug to lower cholesterol. Right now two groups can use it, those with an inherited condition and those who can't get their numbers down with statins. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Scott Wright says it works by affecting a protein which some think could be the key that will unlock cholesterol management to dramatically reduce heart disease risk. For more news, go to the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams.
1: Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Scheib. And I'm Tracy McRae. With the start of school just around the corner, millions of kids are signing up for fall sports, whether it's football, soccer, cross country, or another sport. There are some things to consider before your child goes off to practice. Most schools require a
2: physical exam before starting a sport, but beyond that exam, there are some other things to think about. Here to talk about your child's sports activities is Dr. David Soma. Dr. Soma is a pediatrician and sports medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Soma. It's nice to meet you.
5: Thank you, Tracy and Dr. Scheiss, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you. It's fall, back to school, sports. Sports in general, I suspect, from your point of view, are a good thing?
5: Yeah, they're a terrific thing. Um, growing up, I was an athlete myself, and I really think the benefits of sports are more than just physical activity. There's been a lot of research that shows that, Kids can have better nutrition. They can uh, be more successful in their careers or in their jobs. Uh, They have less drug use, less sexual activity, and a lot of other benefits, and it also just keeps them out of trouble.
2: But there's so much now, I think. um, I'm thinking of football specifically where you'll hear people are um, not signing their kids up for football anymore because they're afraid that the children, when they're young, when they're little, will get hurt, and so that's hurting the numbers of football players.
5: Yeah, I mean, a lot of parents are nervous that their children are going to get hurt, and uh, that's always a possibility with any sport. And I think that obviously certain sports do carry higher risks. Football, hockey, some of the other contact sports do carry higher risk, But I do think, for the most part, the benefits outweigh the risks. And I think you really just got to think about what would, what else would they be doing if they weren't doing the sports. And the other thing I think you want to look at is when they are playing sports, you can do things to prevent injury, uh, making sure they have proper fitting helmets, other equipment. If they start having multiple injuries, you may need to consider changing, but at least give it a try.
2: I mentioned concussions. Concussions is probably one of the top topics when it comes to children and sports. Um, Explain a little bit what we know now about concussions that we didn't
5: know a few years ago. There's a lot of thought that concussions are on the rise, and I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Um, I think it's more that they're being better recognized um, by both coaches, players, parents, uh, physicians, and the like. We still have a lot of ways to go in regards to the research regarding concussion. We don't understand all the nuances of it. But I think that what we have learned is that if it's recognized early and we have the athlete or a patient seek proper medical attention, that they oftentimes have a really good outcome. There are tools that are trying to be developed to help us diagnose concussion more successfully. Um, There's even talks about blood tests or sideline brain monitoring or... Other things, but really I think the key message would be that if you have an athlete who sustains some sort of blow to the head or some sort of force transmitted to the head and they develop some sort of symptoms of a concussion, to just take them out of the game, have them evaluated by somebody that has some experience caring for children with concussion and really just make sure that they get adequate attention. And typically the rule is until they're asymptomatic and they're feeling okay during activity, you shouldn't have them go back to returning to sport.
1: Well, I think one of the important things is that we have recognized that this is a more serious injury than we used to think. Is there a limit to the number of concussions you think a child should have before you would advise the parents that they stop playing that sport?
5: That's a great question. I think the pendulum has, has again really swung. Like you said, Dr. Shives, when I was an athlete, you know, in the late nineties, early two thousands, you'd get a concussion, you'd go back the same day. And then I think that we almost became overly cautious and we really thought, oh boy, if you have a concussion, we got to put you in a dark room, not let you do anything. But then we realized a lot of times that would almost make these very, highly active type A personalities, people that are very involved and almost make them have more of a depressed mood, as that was almost too much treatment. So now we've kind of swung the pendulum back a little bit and said, we've got to take these very seriously because they are a serious injury. Um, but we, we still need to allow people to, to live a little bit in the setting of a concussion. There isn't a magical number that we say, okay, three strikes and you're out and you should not participate in sports. But what we usually look at is the trend. So if the first concussion, it recovers in a couple days, the second one, a couple weeks, the next one, a couple months, the trend is not heading in the right direction. That might be a red flag for a provider or someone. If the level of force required to cause the concussion is progressively getting less and less, that might be a red flag and saying, boy, we're really not taking much force to get these and we might want to pull you out. But, you know, I've seen athletes um, that have had multiple concussions that have been able to go back to sport. So I think there isn't a number, but you want to look at the trend and make sure that you receive a care so you can get guidance on making those decisions.
2: What about um, younger kids moving away from concussions? And of course, yeah. I should, not to say that they can't get concussions, but it's interesting the uh, I did not grow up with the uh, option of all of these sports that the second grade and third grade that kids have now. Well, first grade, you can play playing soccer when you're in kindergarten. Is there a, a guide that parents should maybe look towards when it comes to the activity levels of their younger children?
5: Yeah, I think the primary target um, for, I guess, young children should be exposure to the sport. Um, there isn't a goal to necessarily be successful or try to figure out which sport they're going to be the best because kids evolve a lot over time. Um, what a kid looks like when they're in kindergarten versus seventh grade is dramatically different. So I really think the focus should be just trying to expose them to different things, and um, whether that be soccer, gymnastics for balance, um, looking at baseball for eye-hand coordination, whatever it might be, just trying to hone some physical skills for children so that they have the ability to uh, do that. Um, the number of hours is really hard to say how many hours is too many hours, I do think there's a trend to maybe push your kids a little bit too hard, and, and there's a potential risk with that, with getting certain overuse injuries.
2: You mean like a specialized, like a kid only plays soccer.
5: Yeah, I think that, oh, okay, that's a, that's that would be a, a major concern because you know you know you could imagine that. Um, if you I say this example to some of my patients that if you hit a hammer against your finger over and over again eventually it's gonna hurt. Same thing as if you throw a baseball over and over again, eventually it's gonna start hurting. You really wanna make sure that, you know, you diversify um, and so I think it's I think it's actually very healthy for young kids, five, six, seven year olds, to start participating in sports. But making sure it's not it's not they're still having fun, um and that you're diversifying. And if it's soccer in the fall it shouldn't be soccer all year round because that again, I think that um kind of pigeons holds them into one sport, um, and it also can develop the risk for injury.
1: Almost all school-sponsored sports, uh, there is a requirement that they have a physical examination. What, what's involved in that exam? What are you really looking for? and And what can it tell the parents?
2: Do kids still have to have that?
5: Yes, they do. Each state has its own law in regards to... How frequently you have to have those high school sports physicals. In Minnesota, you need to get one every three years, um, unless the doctor would say you need to be more frequently. Um, the purpose of those exams is actually multiple. Um, one is to try to make sure that that athlete's safe to participate. Make sure they don't have any major cardiac or heart condition or major, um, other health concern, asthma or other things that might result in a major problem while they participate. The other thing would be maybe to recognize injuries that may have been missed previously when they've been playing sports to try to make sure they're getting adequate care. And the other thing is it's a really nice portal of uh, entry into primary care to make sure that their immunizations are up to date, to make sure they have no risks for depression or other things. Um, I said earlier that... These athletes actually have a lower risk of um, mental illness, lower risk of drug use and things like that, so maybe this isn't the highest group to target. But, again, I think it's a really important thing that um, children get cleared to make sure they're safe to participate. But while they're there, also make sure they get updated on all their other health uh, maintenance issues. And when you go into that um, visit, again, probably every three years, usually they start in seventh grade and they get another one typically in tenth grade, um, you can go in expecting to do a full comprehensive examination and a full history. And there might be a few additional questions the provider might ask you just to ensure that there's no family history of any, you know, sudden death while participating in sports or other things that might be at risk. And then they will typically sign the form it goes to the school and uh, it lasts again for about 3 years.
1: When it comes to school sports, the advantages certainly outweigh the risks. That's correct. Dr. David Soma, pediatrician and sports medicine specialist at Mayo Clinic, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure. Thank you so much.
2: We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, as the start of school nears, it's not unusual for youngsters to begin feeling a little apprehensive and worried. But what's a parent to do when these feelings cross the line into serious anxiety and depression? We'll get some answers from a pediatric psychiatrist.
1: You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Doctor Tom Shaw. And I'm Tracy McCrae. Kids may say they're depressed about having to return to school this fall, but you know, for the most part, they're usually just unhappy about having to give up the good time, say goodbye to their friends in their more leisurely lifestyle. <laughs> but for some preteens and
2: adolescents, the depression is very real. The National Institute of Mental Health estimates that about 2.2 million adolescents between the ages of 12 and 17 have had at least one major depressive episode in the past year.
1: Here to talk about diagnosing and treating depression in preteens and in adolescence, is Mayo Clinic psychiatrist and pediatric and adolescent medicine specialist, Dr. Paul Korkin. Welcome to the program, Dr. Korkin. Nice to have you with us.
6: Thank you, Dr. Shives.
1: So it seems like there are an awful lot of depressed kids out there. Uh, either they truly do have depression, or they think they're uh, depressed. It's almost in vogue to be depressed these days if you're a teenager.
6: Well, that's a that's an interesting point. And there's a there there. The idea is not without controversy. We, we psychiatrists based on research do know that it's a, it's a true, true mood disorders and depression in this age is a very common, common event. Upwards of, uh, two to three million, um, adolescents annually in, in, in the U.S., roughly nine percent. But, but, to what you're speaking to, there are there are normal everyday reactions to everyday stress, like um, breakups with girlfriends, uh, boyfriends going back to school, and it's important that we um, we um, you know carefully carefully um, determine and look look at the um, actual impairment that these problems um, in confer in um, the. The child or adolescent's life.
1: So, based on fairly strict diagnostic criteria, you're saying that one out of ten teenagers or adolescents is truly
6: depressed. Based on the based on contemporary research, and it's interesting, you know, and and not that long ago, um, you know, as recently as the 1980s, there was some thought that you know. depression and psychiatric illnesses just didn't happen in children Mm -hmm. and adolescents and we now know through scientific research that that's not the case do kids that
2: think they're depressed maybe like you said they're just going through something a breakup or something like that for the first time uh their first dabble into being an adult is dealing with depression or something that makes them sad are they really not depressed then
6: well it, it it you know it's it's complicated it's um what, what we look for and what, what parents and teachers should be aware of that we look for consistency of symptoms and, and the level of impairment they confer. So it's a little more than being angry or sad one or two days out of the week, uh, you know, Technically, these are consistent symptoms um, over days and weeks uh, and they they can, they also involve what are, what we call neurovegetative symptoms, meaning that there'll be disruptions in sleep um, eating appetite weight loss weight gain um, crying um, what what the psychiatrists call anhedonia, but what basically means that things that were previously enjoyable aren't anymore. A common presentation for an adolescent is an adolescent who's bored, who mm. finds no enjoyment in anything. Adolescence should be a lot of things, but it really, um, boredom Boredom is kind of a warning sign. Um, and then suicidal thoughts or ideation. That's a, a definite, definite red flag and warning signs sign that parents should be aware of.
2: Dr. Shives used the term en vogue. Yeah, is there a piece that social media plays in this? You know, kids are on their phones or they see on some sort of social media or they hear that someone is depressed and then they go gosh, I'm depressed too. I mean, it,
6: is there an impact there? And that's that's that is an interesting thought. Um there are um there are both positive and negative negative uh you know influences on social media outlets and i i have seen that as a clinician that often you know a, you know a certain kind of peer group um will will impact a child or adolescent's life and that's another another important fact to be aware of do you think that 10% of
1: adolescents have always been depressed dating back several decades uh and we just
6: didn't recognize it or we just weren't willing to talk about it or is it more common than it used to be and that's a, that's a great question. The honest, the honest, the honest answer is we, we probably don't fully know, but both of, both, uh, two, two ideas have been talked about over and over again. They, you know, the first is what you, what you speak to, Dr. Shives, is that we, you know, years ago we didn't have, we didn't have as many mental health specialists. We tended to, we tended to not label these things and look for these things. But we, we do know more and more that, that that it appears, um, based on epidemiologic studies and again scientific research, that these um, these sorts of um, disorders are are presenting earlier. So the the idea is that, for example, if you have a parent a parent with depression or bipolar disorder, we know that you're four to five times the risk as a child to to have an earlier presentation, and a um, and a um, probably a more Severe course, unfortunately. The um, you know it's a lot of it is theoretical, theoretical. But the idea of uh, what's called genetic 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 phenomenon referred to as anticipation that's been seen in neurologic disorders such as Huntington's. We know that. You know, for example, a child that presents with Huntington's chorea, it's much more severe and hmm. earlier than than their parents in some cases. What about the rate of
1: suicide? Has it remained about the same, or are there more kids in, as a percentage committing suicide today than a few decades ago? We, we,
6: we do think there has been a, a slight a slight increase in that over, over recent decades. Another very... Um, Another very sobering um, statistic that, that I think about a lot is that, that there are studies that, that suggest that one in five high schoolers actually contemplate suicide seriously, and, wow. and, uh, one which in is, five. which is a pretty, pretty big number. Well, if they've never felt a
2: pain that they think they're never going to get over, and it's maybe minimized by adults, like, oh, I know, it stinks, <laughs> I, I can see where they think this is what I do now. It's, suicide is part of my contemplation. Is anxiety the same as depression
6: when it comes to teenagers? Great question. We actually, in, in current diagnostic um, uh, rubric and criteria, we actually think of it as, a se- for the most part, a separate, separate entity. But the, the, the truth of the matter is, they often co-occur. We call them comorbidities. So it's, um, and, it, and we think that an adolescent or a child that has both, for instance, uh, is is sad day after day after day not functioning well at school and with um kind of anxiety on top of that probably is it is it a higher risk for again Things like suicide and poor outcomes, as far as academics, poor social functioning.
1: How do you make the diagnosis when, when someone, uh, a teenager, comes in to see you with or without their parents? How, how do you decide whether or not it's
6: truly depression or truly anxiety or just a normal variant? It's very, it's very, very challenging because it's different from other areas of medicine. Because by and large, we don't have biologic measures, biomarkers, things like a blood mar- blood pressure, uh, a radiograph. So we do a very detailed interview. With with the child or adolescent, and um, child psychiatry is a little different than adult work in that we do we do lots and lots of uh, what we call collateral history taking. In that it's key that we talk to parents, um, ideally get information from the school as well. We do do systematic rating scales where we um, look at basically uh, measures of you know what symptoms the adolescent's endorsing, and then and then what the what the parent sees as well
2: on one end there is parents call and get help for your kid but in the middle between i notice there's something different about my teenager and getting professional help what can parents do in that middle to help with stress or anxiety or depression
6: i would i would encourage um concerned parents to to consider the school a resource often the school you know they're spending hours every day with 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 the child and to think about maybe a primary care physician first a visit a visit to the local primary care physician to get to get an opinion on what what they think and um, sometimes sometimes like like we talked about earlier just the tincture of time and supportive interventions will will nip these kind of things in the bud and we won't need things like medications or talk therapy
1: one of the things that, that you talked about earlier that I would like you to, to reiterate for our audience, you know, no parent wants to miss true depression in their child. So review for us again the things that a parent might observe that should cause them enough concern that they would seek uh, either a family practitioner or someone like yourself.
6: Okay. And, you know, the simple way to think about it is a is a, a significant change in functioning overall. First of all, are their personalities different um, and, and, you know, not a, not a positive, constructive way. Are they, are they withdrawing from family and friends? Have, you know, another, another kind of classic, um, symptom are, has, have the school, has the schoolwork taken a, you know, a drop? You know, a previously A, B student is now a C and D student. But again, things like a irritable or dysphoric mood, a depressed mood for day after day after day for two to three weeks at a, you know, should be concerning, uh, Loss of interest in normally fun activities, problems with sleep, problems um, with appetite. And then, in, again, any any mention of suicide or mm-hmm. wanting to be dead or um, thoughts of hurting myself is a is a red flag that should be taken seriously.
2: And that last one aside, the other things on that list that you just mentioned could just be what some people would say, well, that's a teenager being a little bit moody, a little bit, you know, dissociated you know whatever um how do you tell the difference between i'm just a teenager and i really do need some help
6: well a teenager a teenager with a with a mood disorder will have um you know again impairment so if it's if it's getting into their They're having problems functioning in their everyday life is a way to think of it. If they can't do the things that teenagers should do to have a happy life, uh, have relationships, boyfriends, girlfriends, peer group, succeed at school, succeed in sports, those sorts of things. Dr. Paul Corkin, an expert
1: on pediatric and adolescent depression, thanks so much for the uh, update on an important topic for all of us. Thank you. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
2: Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or email us at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. We may answer your question during an upcoming program.
1: You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us.